being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong all right today we are joined by keith allen dennis who i think i first heard about keith allen dennis through the farm podcast with the wackle series that they did which i consider legendary and for a brief time he was on twitter where he was immediately one of the best posters on there. Keith Allen Dennis is an independent researcher, an amateur historian. I think soon maybe we might be able to say professional historian, but professional amateur, (laughs) his words, not mine. Uh, Keith Allen Dennis is also a songwriter. And so some of the songs we play today are going to be his music. He's also a curmudgeon and a friend of the show. He has helped me in several episodes so far, and I'm very happy to have him on. How are you doing today, Keith Allen Dennis? I'm doing great, uh, Mr. Fallon Gong. Thank you for the, the intro. I am a fan of the show, and uh, it really means a lot to me to be able to take little tips and suggest books or pass along documents and things that I've found to aid folks like you in doing your very important work on 20th century history the parapolitical century. <laughs> so I'm happy to be here. I'm grateful. Thank you very much. No, we were talking and like, we were just describing like my show and like just other shows and like, <laughs> like we were talking about how like we both do pretty far out reading. And so it's nice to like sort of build up like a community of people who know what we're talking about, <laughs> just simply like making people aware of the weird shit that we're into. <laughs> oh yeah. I, you know, I know very, very vanishingly few people in real life that I can talk to about stuff like this. So, you know, getting into the whole podcasting thing has made me feel like just a little bit less lonely and crazy. So good, good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you want to talk about what you studied like in school or that's fine. That's fine. Uh, yeah. So you want to know what, you know, my area of study, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just the, the journey real quick. Uh, I was going to go into the Navy when I was in high school, I was in ROTC and then Gulf War one happened. And I was like, no, no, I'm <laughs> not going to be a mercenary for Halliburton. This is, this is trash. And so I was in high school. So I kind of had a little bit of, consciousness of, of some of this stuff you know then of course 9-11 uh really changed uh changed everything you know when uh mm-hmm. when uh when bush did 9-11 uh it really <laughs> caused you know a real awakening and sort of political consciousness and geopolitical consciousness and to say awakening is really being too charitable i was you know mid-20s or something and you're basically a teenager still in those. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry for all the youngins out there, but yeah, but it, it kind of lit the fuse on it. And uh, I was very much into all the conspiracy stuff. Uh, come to realize later on how, you know, the perfectly legitimate concerns about, let's say, NATO expansion <laughs> and Time NATO, NATO becoming a fig leaf for pretty naked American imperial ambitions, places like, I don't know, 
Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, et cetera, et cetera. And just being a dyed in the wool anti-war guy. And if you are of that persuasion and you're researching stuff on the internet, you are you're just holding a black pill in front of your face the whole time, getting ready to eat it, or a red pill or blue pill or whatever. Um, <laughs> and and it's you know, eventually I kind of came out of that. I kind of came out of the Alex Jones sort of John Birch Society influence, uh, you know, nemosphere. And I've since come to realize that basically the entirety of uh, conspiracy culture uh, was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an arm of conservative politics. You know? Yeah. Like, like we're going to talk about the Moonies because it relates to our episode here and people we're going to talk about. But, like, it's just it's one example, and it's my favorite example. How come Alex Jones or um, William Cooper, none of those guys, they never talked about the Moonies? It's just, just one example. Uh, it's like, well, because they're on the same team, you know, that's why, right? So, uh, anyway, so then it became, you know, I started figuring out that you could actually, you know, read books instead of watch YouTube and stuff. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history. I wound up doing, um, you know, my graduate history thesis on the early years of the World Anti-Communist League. And in the process, I got to go do primary source research at the Hoover Institution. And since then, me and Recluse and me and some other people, we've, we've hired freelancers or gone ourselves to special collections around the country to get our hands on primary source documents, the stuff that isn't in any book. And I found that it's remarkably easy to do that. A lot of times these are student workers at libraries in various places. And I used to work at an library and you get bored. And it's like, give me something to do. It's like, all right, I'll give you something to do. How about you pull box 10, folder six of whatever and uh, scan me a copy of it. And, you know, if you can keep it reasonable, a lot of times you can get that stuff for free from board student workers around the country. And uh, I'm, say, I'm saying this because I, I don't know that you can take for granted that these collections are going to be there forever. I don't know that you can take for granted that the ability for the public to access it is going to be around forever. So. Uh, if I, a uh, schlub, curmudgeon guy in the desert, can do it, so can you if you're listeners, and I encourage everybody that way. Yeah, no, you've sent me some of the things that you found, and it is just, like, astonishing what is in, like, just some library in some collection somewhere. <laughs> like, truly the most yeah. insane stuff I've ever seen, actually. Yeah, yeah, so, so if you're doing historical research on something, you know, one of their main first tasks, like if you're doing a thesis, for example, is to do a literature review and find everything that you can that's been published on a given topic mm-hmm. and read all of it and kind of analyze it and digest it. And the reason you do that is because that way when you go to a place like the institution, you've read everything that's been published. And so you know when you're looking at something, well, I've read every book. And this right here ain't in any of them. Oh my gosh! Now you found something novel, and you can actually contribute something new to the to the historical dialogue, as it were. So yeah, no, that's so cool. And like getting into primary sources is like a thing that I would really like to do, and I have not yet. So for sure, it's an inspiration to me. 
Yeah. And so for the subject we're going to talk about today, you know, uh, I have, I'm very grateful. You really put my ass to work, man. I've done a comprehensive literature review on today's topic. And, uh, yeah, I mean, between the two of us, I think we must have read every book in English, at least, that talks about Sasakawa, right? Like, yeah, I think, honestly, like, you read several more than I have, and I read most of them, because there really aren't that many. Actually, let's, let's introduce the topic today. So, so the topic today is Ryoichi Sasakawa. And when we were scoping this episode, we were like, I don't know when it could possibly end. There's like literally so much to talk about with this guy. Like, could you talk about how much there is like with this guy? Well, uh, born literally technically in the 19th century, died in the last decade of the 20th century. The man covered the entire 20th century of Japanese history. He was out front, uh, mm-hmm. proudly representing it. He's also a ghost that is haunting it. And um, there's almost, I don't know, it's probably being too hyperbolic to say there's almost no part of Japanese history in the last 100 years that he wasn't a part of in some way. I don't know if that's too strong of a statement, but man, he was in the mix on just about everything you got as far as Japan. Yeah, no, I mean, he would easily be one of the, I don't know, at least in the top 10, maybe top five, maybe top three most influential Japanese, like of all time, maybe, like at least in the 20th century, right? I I, I think you, I think you're right. Um, By way of introduction, I guess uh, we should just get out of the way a few of the sauciest color quotes uh, of Sasakawa. He famously said, I am the world's richest fascist, which is pretty good. I mean, he pretty much tells you what he's all about. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Another quote that I like is, all my critics are red or jealous or else spiteful because I didn't give them money. Again, sort of tells you what he's about. Uh, The next quote would be, today, the far right isn't what it used to be. For the last 15 to 16 years, they've all been gangsters. He was talking about the ultranationalists. He said that in 1986. (laughs) Um, He told Newsweek, I am one of the world's last fools. (laughs) Um, He also said, I have not exploited one yen or one penny. What I did was to donate several million tuberculosis injections to China. Like, in some ways, Sasakawa reminds me of like a like a like a car dealership owner, except like on a national, like on an international scale. Like, <laughs> he would be the guy who would like donate to a little league team, but then make sure that his face was like on a billboard next. Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. My name, my uh, visage, my likeness needs to be all over it, and you all need to know where this came from. Yeah. yeah, like I know we're jumping to the end of his life, but did you did you hear about that statue that he put up where it was him and his elderly mother on his back, and it was like him carrying his elderly mother, but like clearly it was just like, damn, look at how filial I am. 
Yeah, I'm actually going to get into that statue. There's some interesting history along with that. And there's not just one. There's multiple statues. <laughs> there's more than one? <laughs> that, that, that's what I understand. I, I may be wrong. Uh, but, I, yeah, I heard, I heard that I read something. There were multiple such. That's so funny. Um, and then, but like, we'll, we're definitely going to get into his whole life. But basically, Sasakawa funded so many things in Japan and so many things internationally. He was definitely like the world's richest fascist, probably barring like accusations of crypto fascism by like the royal family or something like <laughs> the richest self-identified fascist for sure. And like you said, like there's nothing that he wasn't at least, you know, somewhat involved with throughout like almost the entirety of like Japanese modern history. So yeah, let's get into it. <clears throat> so like you said, he was born in 1899. His parents were sake brewers uh, in Osaka, which meant that his parents were well to do. Yes. And when he was a kid, Sasakawa, he was in really into aviation and he was very interested in the Wright brothers. And he, having rich parents, he got his parents to send him to study with Nishide Kiyoshi, who was one of the pioneers of Japanese aviation. I'm pretty sure that they did the first flights in Japan. And Sasakawa eventually became a stunt pilot. You know, can, can I jump in there about something? Because absolutely, this guy is the, you know, the proud fascist, the world's last fool and all this kind of stuff. Um, there was a book I read several years ago, kind of about World War One. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called The Rights, the Rights of Spring by a guy named Modris Eckstein's. And he talked in that book about how enamored the the original 20th century fascist movements were with air travel. Mm. Um, it was man overcoming gravity and storming the heavens by the force of his will and his kind of Faustian power. Uh, you know, you, Hitler flying into his rallies made an enormous impression and his propagandists really pushed that. Uh, you had Charles Lindbergh, the mm -hmm. German hero, the, the, the Woody Guthrie song, Mr. Charlie Lindbergh, he flew to Old Berlin, got him a big iron cross, and he flew right back again. <laughs> um, uh, Italians raining death down on the Libyans from the air. Also, Gabriel D'Annunzio, the inventor of fascism in some ways. He was an aviator, too, I think. Right. So, uh, anyway, the point is, uh, fascists love aircraft, and so here we are. Sasakawa is kind of like this pioneer of really pushing, hey, we need an air force, you know, uh, and flying to see Mussolini and all that kind of stuff. But you, that, what you were saying, I just, it seemed like a good place to interject. That no, for sure. And anytime you want to interject, feel free, like no worries at all. Well, I will, okay, since you're offering, I'll say uh, <laughs> I found him, I found in one of these places, we were talking about his early life. He had said that his dad uh, was hesitant about sending him to school because he was afraid it would turn him. It would turn him what? Pink, you know, like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you go get an education. Next thing you know, Ryoichi, you're going to be a socialist. I don't know about this school business. <laughs> and there was a, a, a guy that uh, later got a Nobel Prize that uh, his name was Kata Kawabata. 
uh, Yasunari. Uh, he got a Nobel Prize in Literature later on, which is something that Sasakawa always wanted, but that was one thing he couldn't buy his way into. And they went up, they went to school together, and he, he beat uh, Kawabata one time in school. And when he would get in trouble in school, uh, he, he skipped classes a lot, and he said his mom would make him go like spend the night in the graveyard and stuff to punish him. <laughs> So uh, some some of that there's a there's a a, universe, a Duke University interview that's like two hours long that you can find on YouTube where he actually kind of talks about some of that. Oh, that's crazy! Life. See, that's another thing. Like Kawabata, like I've read one of his novels, The Master of Go. Like I had no idea he knew Sasakawa. That's that's crazy. Yeah, he got beat up by him when he was a kid. <laughs> yeah, he and he was talking about it in his Duke University interview. He talked about. <laughs> roughing him up so imagine beating up a future nobel prize for literature winner <laughs> yeah maybe if he kept his hand to himself he would have got one too i don't know but <laughs> damn that's a good metaphor honestly what <laughs> <laughs> so you were saying sir um well so sasakawa uh basically turned his like uh, i guess hobby into like a full-time thing and he basically developed the first like it was basically a collection of airplanes that he eventually donated to the japanese state and it became the core of the first japanese air force which he gave to the navy i'm pretty sure i know later on it was mm -hmm. about two dozen planes that he donated yeah and i think he might have also donated the field that they were using yeah now sasakawa was drafted into world war one and he was a pilot during that conflict. He served for two years, and then he was injured. I'm not sure. I don't think it was in the line of combat, but nevertheless, like, you know, that ended his military career. And then from that point, Sasakawa got into rice futures and commodity trading, which... Which is yeah. interesting, isn't it? So, so yeah. you know, I, I found uh, that... Um, probably right around the time he would have been like 19 or 20, uh, right around the end of World War One, there were riots in Japan over rice shortages. Mm-hmm. That's right. Really, really serious ones. Yeah, and, and sake, of course, is, you know, it's rice wine or rice or whatever. Uh, so you got to wonder if, if uh, he, he looked at the, looked at his dad, looked at the rice riots and said, you know, there's some money here. <laughs> yeah. yeah no i mean it's a thing that i can't speak to at great length but like people like messing with the cost of rice was like a serious complaint at various points in japanese history and so he was basically one of the speculators for that which is like doesn't speak well to i guess his well, I'm trying not. I'm trying to refrain from judging at this point. But um, he also got into stock trading at this point. Um, the Japanese stock trade uh, was operating, and he was in the mix, buying and selling. In a little bit, we'll get into some of the interesting aspects to that. Uh, but he was also a investor in mines, which means that he was getting connected with Japanese heavy industry, and you know. You know about heavy industry. They tend to go far right. They tend to go 
and fund fascism essentially. So I find that very interesting. Uh, it is speculated. It is not proven, but it is likely that he might have joined the Black Dragon Society around this time. And this isn't me speculating alone, right? The Japan Policy Research Institute and the very intelligent scholars there uh, have speculated along those lines. It would probably be a surprise if he was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was not some little small out-of-the-way click. right there seated at the table with the emperor. You know. Yeah, and he was the type of person that they would have wanted. And given the rest of his life, it is all but like, like if he wasn't in it, he definitely knew people who were like 100%. The next thing he did around this time in like the 20s was he bought a publishing company called the National Defense Company. And they put out right-wing literature. So he's just getting more and more into this world essentially right yeah paid, paid for it with this rice speculating no doubt <laughs> and then in 1931 he founded the patriotic people's party which i've seen translated a few different ways uh another translation calls it the national essence mass party i've seen a few others so i guess there's some leeway there but it was pretty big, actually. Like, he had 15,000 people in this party. Dressed them up in black shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, they were explicitly modeling themselves on the Italians. <laughs> and Kodama was a member. So, very interesting. Um, that, that, uh, that, there's an, another little note I want to interject about the, the National Essence Mass Party, which I like that. That's just mm -hmm. great. It's nice and long. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a book called um, Nationalism in the Right Wing in Japan by Ivan Morris that was uh, in early 70s that it was written. And, uh, he cites a, a Japanese historian in Sumuri. Uh, but there was this talismanic quality to the names. I know you've been really interested to talk in your previous episodes about how fascinating the names of these yeah. different Japanese groups are right so because of that i pulled this quote and i, I just like to put it in here because I, I think it's interesting not only for japan but uh it has implications for like double speed and, and things like that but but uh so here it is quote the relative ease with which japan's leaders including some of those who until the surrender had been the most rabid rabidly nationalistic pronouncements were now able to adopt the new democratic slogans can also be understood in terms of verbal usage. In his discussion of the amuletic use of words in Japan, Mr. Tsurumi explains that phrases like the eight corners of the world under one roof lost their value with Japan's defeat, and their place was often taken up by, by up-to-date reported amulets from the West, such as democracy, freedom, people's rights, and peace which, like their predecessors, were in effect used as, quote, charms against ill luck. Uh, so Mr. Surumi goes on to say, uh, when one sees that the same commentator saying the praises of democracy, freedom, and peace as before and throughout the war had seemed to welcome aggressive action, one is inclined to conclude that the reason for their having done so 
or the reason for their having no qualms about this changeover may well lie in their having pondered on the analytic nature of these words and come to realize that a change in the words can take place without any change in the content. And, and I'm bringing this up, that's the end quote, I'm bringing this up because um, after Japan's surrender, the party changed, the National Mass Essence Party changed to the National League of Working People. Mm-hmm. And then when Sasakawa was purged, it was dissolved altogether. But, but that same party was revived in uh, 1954. And when it was, it stuck with the network. So similarly, the, the Kodama Kikan or Kodama Agency changed names after the surrender to the Japan National Party. So, you know, it's just, it's just interesting. Like, because, you know, for example, the, the liberal democratic party right one party rule (laughs) neither liberal nor democratic right but in terms of the talismanic quality that these guys thought those words had because after all the victorious americans never shut up about all freedom and democracy stuff maybe we should just call it that they seem to be having good luck with them with their words so yeah no i think there's definitely something to that and like clearly some of the ultranationalist groups are maybe doing it in a ham-fisted way, but I really do think there's something kind of sophisticated with some of the other groups and what they choose to call themselves, for sure. Let's see here. So we talked about how he donated the flying squad to, and that was the core of the first Air Force. But interestingly enough, uh, he also airlifted supplies to the Japanese troops after the Manchurian incident, like on his own, he airlifted, he bought and paid for and airlifted supplies, brought them over there. Yes. Pickles, sake, sweets, and other supplies. That's <laughs> what I, what I've read. That, that's, that was the, what I found that that's apparently what he brought over. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and around that same time, he was lending his aircraft to the Navy. You had asked if it was the Naval Aviation for pilot training. Very interesting. Well, there's also, just as a side note, like a lot of those early aviators were very much in like that aristocratic vein, right? Wasn't the Red Baron literally a baron? Uh, you'd have to tell me, but I don't know. I think so. I think it was a lot of that, like, I think all air forces have always had more of that, like, chivalry sort of culture, like, that you don't necessarily see in, like, armies with, like, infantries. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, now you've got the ghost of Kiev, so, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know what his uh, pedigree is. But, uh, you know. <laughs> we should say... <laughs> I should say for the listeners, uh, as we're recording, this is February 27th. So pretty much into day, what, two or three of what could end up being World War Three. <laughs> I yeah. sure hope not, but maybe. Just, yeah, I think it'll be a, a positive uh, reflection on the human race if uh, we're all around long enough for this episode to actually get published. <laughs> Baby steps. <laughs> Seriously. Ah. Um, anyway, back to sleepwalking. We, where were we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in 1935, 
Sasakawa gets arrested for a very interesting charge, right? He's arrested for, he's charged with blackmail that he was basically approaching businesses and blackmailing them. Uh, I Basically, he was trying to shake them down. I think he was trying to like buy into certain concerns at, in some cases, like, but he was essentially like using like Yakuza elements to do this, but he was like the money guy. So like, that's something that we'll see in the future, right? Sasaka was essentially the money guy for essentially like Yakuza thugs, right? And this is like the first recorded instance of this, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when we're talking about Sasakawa, he's really one third of the 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 three amigos. You know, uh, Kodama and Kodama Kishi being the other. So Kodama's the mobster, straight up the muscle. Kishi's the politician, and uh, Sasakawa is is the money bags. That's right. So he really does have like one foot in each, but like isn't really fully either. Like Sasakawa never was himself like a gangster, but he was constantly doing like <laughs> gangster shit. Like if if this were not, not to like get too into like the American context, but he would be closer to like the purple gang or something, like more of like the money side racketeers rather than <laughs> but he I at the same time, I think he was more legit than them. It's probably not a useful metaphor, but so the, yeah, the interesting thing with this charge of blackmail is that he initially got a not guilty verdict, but prosecutors appealed and Sasakawa was found guilty on appeal. And then it went to the high court, which overturned it. <laughs> so he was basically like stuck in this like limbo because he was charged in 1935. The appeal, I think, was in 1938. And then the final, like, overturning wasn't until, like, maybe in into the 1940s. Happened. He was indicted for extortion and acquitted. Yeah. But, you know, but he was still going uh, around that time. Do, do you remember when exactly he flew to Italy? What year that was? Yes. So he... <clears throat> went to Berlin and Rome, I think on the, I think sometimes on the same trip. He first went in 1939, but I think he also went in 1940. And he made these trips independently, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, I, I've actually got something on that from, from that university interview. But before I get into that, I should say that around the time in his legal troubles in 1937, his uh, political party, the one we talked about a minute ago, was uh, one of the members of something called the International Anti-Communist League. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I, I, didn't, I didn't know this was a thing, uh, you know, until recently doing studying up for this. But it's like, wait a minute. I, um, he goes on to do that again later on. Uh, so that was interesting. But also, he, he took part in celebrations around Japan signing of the anti-common term pact of Italy and Germany. That was mm. 1936. So some sources have Sasakawa as being the, 
the kind of the go-between to help bring Japan to the axis. And you got to wonder if those trips to Europe were, you know, part of that. But uh, in, in, his, in his interview with, with Duke, uh, they asked him about his trip to Rome. And it was really interesting hearing the guy. He's got an interpreter sitting next to him. So it makes the interview twice as long as it needs to be because he talks. And the lady sitting next to him is going, I, 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 you know, I get it. She's writing stuff down, and then, and then she gives the answer. So it, it's quite a slog. But anyway, he, uh, he said that the leaders in the Army and the Navy had tried but couldn't get bodies with uh, Mussolini. And they had returned to Japan very frustrated. And that, he says, is when he volunteered to go. And he said that uh, a rare snowfall happened in Rome on the day after he arrived. And apparently it doesn't snow very often in Rome. He said that the saying in Rome is that snow brings happiness. And the people in Italy said, Mr. Sasakawa has brought happiness. And so this swayed Il Duce into meeting with them. Uh, and... and and he said something that he'd already said when they asked him about where he got his money. He's like, look, I was literally, here's the quote, born under a lucky star. <laughs> and all my life, all my life, I didn't even set out to win. I'm just naturally lucky. So he says his lucky star that he was born under, uh, is, he credits that with, uh, with the snowfall that kind of melted uh, Mussolini's heart. <laughs> so, I, you know, because you see the book, you, know, you, you went to, uh, see Mussolini on his plane. And I, there's all these little quotes of Sasakawa. Yeah, like, they made it like a news event, right? Because he flew himself, I think. Yeah, yeah, he did. But the, but 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 the different books will always like pull these little, you know, it's kind of like the well-trodden ground of snippets about Sasakawa, and they've always got to throw in. You know, he went and visited Mussolini before the war, you know that kind of thing. But in the interview, he actually gives a little context to it, and it's. It's really such an illustration of the guy's big personality, his huge ego, where he's just talking about you know, influencing the weather. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot of it's like very Washington chopped down the cherry tree kind of apocryphal myth making. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, but he's the guy doing it himself. So. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in because this is, we're right in this late 30s period, so the Mussolini trip. Maybe you had something else to add about the Mussolini trip. Uh, no, I mean, like, I just saw that more of that color. Like, apparently he gave Mussolini a sumo referees fan as a gift. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, sumo always comes up whenever dignitaries are visiting. They always, always see sumo. I think that's true even today. Like it's a very traditional Japanese thing to do, but it really does remind me of like back when I was doing the Who Financed Hitler series, where like Nazis were trying to like get an audience with Mussolini, like you know, like very like back channel diplomacy always interests me so much because it's so rife for speculation, but like it's never really documented you know yeah but like if anybody was making back channel deals with Mussolini and Hitler it would have been probably Sasakawa yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay um also around this time and as 
In the 1930s and into the 40s, Sasakawa was constantly traveling to China and Manchuria for all kinds of interesting reasons that we can surmise, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, On the eve of the Pacific War, uh, Sasakawa introduced Kodama to the Imperial Navy officers. uh, And I guess he, Sasakawa basically brokered Kodama, like he brokered the Kodama purchasing agency. Yes, yes. Sasakawa referred to Admiral Yamamoto as sensei. Uh, Yamamoto was, uh, had been to the United States, as many of these guys had been, mm. and had seen the air fields and, the, more importantly, the oil fields. And, you know, another one of these 20th century guys like Yeltsin or whoever that gets to go see the United States for the first time and how big you know, young it is, and they're like, oh my God, we don't have a chance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Yamamoto had that same experience, and he basically was like, we are not going to be able to keep up with the United States in a naval race, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the super-duper pro-war uh, types in Japan really resented him for having a bad attitude <laughs> about their prospects, right? Um, so you had these inter-service rivalries just like you had in the United States, and it really was the experience in the Pacific War that caused the United States to pull together what's now called the Joint Chiefs of Staff because our armed forces uh, between different services really were kind of at each other's throats a lot of times in the Pacific theater, especially the yeah. Army, not like Marines so they had the same thing happening in Japan. And so, you know, you had this push of like, no, we need an army. We need to consolidate Manchuria and possibly go to war with the Soviets. And then you had the other people saying, no, no, we need to project power into the ocean and uh, have a big navy and yeah, naval yeah. air force. So anyway, so, so uh, Sasakawa called upon his old follower, Yoshio Kodama, to serve as the naval air force's purchasing agent. And that is how the Kodama agency officially kicked off on Pearl Harbor Day. And uh, <laughs> Kodama got busy procuring uh, strategic <laughs> materials needed for the zeros and, and, you know, made by Mitsubishi, let's not forget, uh, while looting gold and precious metals and jewels and artifacts. And, uh, and by some accounts, Kodama was running what was at the time the world's largest heroin cartel in Manchuria. <laughs> and uh, Kodama skimmed about $175 million by the time the war ended and supposedly had stashed uh, two whole truckloads of diamonds and platinum and God knows what else. And, and that was his post-war startup capital. I mean, that is like not even like a golden lily level vault in the Philippines. This this was just Kodama's like personal skin. Crazy. Yeah. And can I just ask, like Yes, please. The so the two truckloads, I forget where, but it was like pretty well cited actually that that existed. Like M- multiple military, yeah. US military report or something. Well, I don't know. I don't remember, but I've seen it in at least two books. And I think that mm. the 
Yakuza was one of them, maybe Blood Brothers was the other, uh, but I, it might have even been Inside the League. But, you know, my question is, what kind of trucks are we talking about? Are we talking about yeah. a, Ford, a Ford Ranger? Are we talking about, a, <laughs> you know, a big military truck that can hold the whole thing? Like a, like a semi-truck? <laughs> yeah, you know. But then again, $175 million in diamonds and platinum. I mean, those are max bank for buck materials. You know, you don't need a lot of diamonds to rack up a big bill, right? Platinum, yeah. good for it. So it could have just been little trucks, and it's still $175 million worth of stuff, you know? Well, because I think it was in Gold Warriors, right, where, like, Kodama was, like, allowed to take all the platinum, but he had to give the gold to Golden Lily. And then later he switched to, like, gems because it was it weighed less than the platinum did like right really interesting stuff yeah so if it's diamonds and platinum those are two of the most valuable of all of the loot right so this is he's like if i only get two trucks <laughs> we're gonna fill them up with the highest bang for buck ratio loot that, that on the planet gold is not good any platinum yeah <laughs> Yeah. Now let me, let me ask you, right. Because there, like you said, there was these essentially this big difference between the Japanese army and Navy, and it sort of loosely maps onto like the control faction and the Imperial way faction. Um, to the best of like your understanding, where did Sasakawa align? Was he more in like the Imperial way faction as in like he aligned more with trying to go to war with the Soviets over the Americans? You know, that's a good question. And I don't really, uh, I don't really know the answer to it, but I'm going to speculate that, mm. um, that uh, Sasakawa was, I do know this. He was of the three amigos. He was probably the most mercenary and um, mm. uh, well, maybe he ties with Kishi on that, but I'm just saying, I, I can imagine, I think uh, the, the, the occupation authorities write up of Sasakawa said something along the line of Sasakawa is a dangerous man and it's not above uh, donning any cloak of opportunity <laughs> that may present itself to further his aims or something. That's, that's a bad job of quoting something but i've read it enough times that's another one of those full quotes that gets talked about or gets put into different books about this is what the americans thought of sasakawa right before they let him out of prison um so what anyway to try to answer your question i you know definitely was pro-empire but he definitely uh would not be above listening to the likes of yamamoto who called for some kind of moderation about you know the, the the war aims and things like that, so uh, I don't I don't really know the answer, but I, I think Sasakawa is probably not above uh, changing teams uh, according to which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, and that's a good point. Like a lot of this came to a head in like the 30s, and then like essentially the control faction won, and obviously the rest is history, and then we're sort of like, it's almost like a selection bias because this is clearly one of the guys that was close enough, like aligned with American interests for the Americans to like keep him. So like, yeah, I guess interesting. 
because yeah like that question yeah it's like well at what stage of his life like in what decade are we talking about yeah Now, in 1942, Sasakawa ran for the National Diet, right? And I think, I think he won, right? Like, yeah, yeah, he was in it for a minute. Yeah. And he ran as a independent, quote unquote, right? <laughs> um, but yeah. maybe we should talk about the nature of the National Diet in 1942 uh, and why him being politically independent really didn't mean what we think it means. Um, just that <laughs> I think by 1942, the diet didn't have the power of the purse to basically like approve budgets for like the military anymore. So like they really weren't running the country anymore. And essentially like, being a member of the national diet didn't really afford you very much like compared to like prior decades and so like in some ways this is almost like closer to being a ceremonial position than like at other times I guess is how I would put it but uh Nobusuke Kishi backed him backed Sasakawa uh running for this office I believe so that's interesting yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, that's two of the three amigos. Yeah, I, I think the, the part about him being in the diet sounds like you know, you know more about that part. Than I. It's just a blip of you know, what a life. 
I think he was only in for like one or two terms. It, he, I don't think he really distinguished himself in any way. It's like, it's hard to explain. Like basically the diet didn't, just didn't have the power that it had in like the twenties and thirties. So. You know, what would be good. Good thing about being in the diet around that time for a guy like Sasakawa though, is uh, keeping tabs on it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I know I'm independent. I'm here as an observer. <laughs> Make, just making sure I don't need to extort anybody to keep them in line. You know, think happy thoughts, everybody. We're gonna win. It also gave him definite exposure to how the system theoretically works, which will become extremely relevant in just a little bit. Right now, I was gonna say too that I won't go into this in great detail because I covered it in the prior episodes, but. This is the same Sasakawa that uh, basically saved Yoshiko Kawashima's life. He was the guy that brought her back to Japan when the Japanese intelligence was at the point where they were willing to kill her because she was becoming so annoying. Is this the guy that you had talked about in earlier episodes that was like uh, kind of a gender bender? That's right. Same lady. So I mentioned her in those episodes and then I have, I think maybe three episodes that I do that haven't come out yet as of us recording this, but really interesting lady. She is basically just a like propaganda tool for Japanese imperialism, but Sasakawa bailed her out at several points and like paid a bunch of her debts and basically also slept with her naturally saw her shooting up heroin. Uh, he basically gave her all the money to clean up her life. Um, and basically then she went on her way. I think she went back to China later, but he was one of those guys. That's the thing with Sasakawa. He was a guy that would come in and with his money, he would fix a bunch of problems. He really seemed to like to play that role as the money man fixer. With, and he, and he later bragged about um, having uh, bedded down some 500 women throughout his life. So I guess uh, really would have been one of them. Yeah, real Wilt Chamberlain over here. I, I, I you know, it's like, why are you telling us this? You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway you were saying sir no that's so funny because it's like that's such a classic like big personality thing like what like alex jones i think said that too like <laughs> it's just <laughs> really funny um so let's see here i think we're getting to through world war ii so during world war ii he was generally like involved in shipping, like air shipping. He was involved in running his different businesses. Uh, he was involved in financing different things, right? Yeah. And then basically <laughs> Japan lost the war, right? Correct. <laughs> I've been told. And so Sasakawa chose to become even more active in politics at this time uh the i'm quoting the japan policy research institute here uh and they say alarmed at the prospect of the collapse of the emperor system and the advance of communism 
Sasakawa entered into negotiations with a wide cross-section of leading politicians in an attempt to create a new Japan mass party. Various accounts trace the seed money for this effort to funds generated from the sale of Kodama agency loot. When this effort failed, Sasakawa threw his support behind Hatoyama's Liberal Party, but his post-war political career was cut short by his arrest and imprisonment as a war criminal. That's Sasakawa's arrest and imprisonment as a war criminal. Yeah, and, and during that time, between the end of the war and the time he was arrested, he was driving around Japan, giving speeches, trying to organize the, the you know, party like you're talking about, but also daring the occupation forces to arrest him. Uh, and when he found out, when he knew he was going to really go down, he, instead of waiting to be frog marks, he, he drove to Sagamo himself, uh, uh, accompanied by a brass band uh, playing <laughs> Imperial Navy March was what the, the music they were playing, and everybody was shouting bonsai, and that's when he handed himself in. So, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> it's just larger than life, man. Like, big, big man shit right here, you know? <laughs> oh, man. And I love just the idea where he's just like, arrest me. And it's like, the, bro, that is not the time to be antagonizing <laughs> guess it worked though i don't know but so an elemental force of bravado so it's he's not going to do it any other way right yeah i guess you have to be true to your nature i guess um so sasakawa was imprisoned for i want to say three years uh more or less he was imprisoned from or maybe two he was like arrested around what like 46 the beginning of 46 yeah. is what I understood. And he was released in December 1948. <clears throat> now, while he was imprisoned, among other things, like cutting deals, uh, he also found time to write Sugamo Prison Diary. Sugamo being the prison. And, you know, that's the name of his memoir <laughs> where he was imprisoned, which I have read. Uh, it has... I'll, I'll talk about this later, but it has a truly insane introduction, maybe for another time, but really interesting stuff because we have Kodama who wrote, I was defeated. We have Sasakawa who wrote uh, Sugamo Diary. And both of these were translated into English and published by very interesting uh, publishers, I guess you could say. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later, too. We're going to talk about uh, a group called Moral Rearmament in a few minutes. Okay. So I just want to put a star next to this so I don't lose it when we talk about MRA. One of the big MRA things was, you know, uh, in order to really uh, jumpstart the attempt to negotiate something and conflict resolution, one of the most important things you can do is to start by apologizing for your part in the problem. <laughs> so MRA was very influential in post-war Japan. And here, two of the three amigos have got their, uh, their apology books 
you know, I was defeated or Sasakawa, the famously uh, macho man, you know, is writing a, his prison diary, you know, uh, <laughs> meaning I was in prison, you know, I was defeated, whatever. Um, and then they get a boost. I remember seeing a picture somewhere of Kishi uh, signing an, his autograph on a copy of uh, I was defeated, you know, <laughs> when it was being released. That definitely contextualizes these books because they are very interesting and like extremely telling, but not necessarily in like the ways that you would think, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I have not read either one of them. I've read a couple of quotes from a couple of them. Did they seem kind of scripted and like they told me to say this, so here it is? Or what, what was your take on those books? So I definitely remember the Kodama one better, uh, but it weirdly was not actually like it did feel like he wrote it. Um, but he spends most of the time like not talking about like, cause you know, he was running essentially like a drug cartel. So like he wasn't necessarily guilty of the things that like the Americans care about. So like most of the book is just him, like talking about the spirit of Japan and like shit like that. Like, and then he like spends a lot of time talking about like how betrayed the ultra nationalists were by like the, control faction it's just like it's a it's like equal measures like boring and yet like sort of like interesting what they choose to focus on if that makes sense yeah was it was it similar reading the sugamo diary of sasakawa yeah it was very much along those same lines you know i i'd heard i heard that uh there was like a nickname they gave it was not sugamo prison but sugamo university <laughs> yeah i mean we should talk about who all was arrested um it was well maybe we should talk about who was arrested and then let go right now we're talking about the three amigos right because kishi was arrested too yes and he was telling sasakawa he's telling kodama while he's there in sagamo university uh you know uh me and Mr. Sasakawa, uh, we're probably never getting out of here. But, but then they did. Yeah, because like any sane government <laughs> or any form of like justice would have required probably hanging them because Kodama, basically a drug dealer. Um, Kishi was like deeply involved in all of the worst excesses of the Manchukuo state. Yeah, yeah. His, I think his title was Economic Development Minister for Manchukuo, which sounds very benign, but considering it was like a minister for the puppet state of Manchukuo. Yeah. And that, that is a title that sounds really benign and bloodless, but, you know, considering, I mean, J Japanese imperial ambitions had their sights on Manchuria you know, almost from the beginning with, with like Korea being like a stepping stone to, you know, to this greater uh, imperial ambitions on the Asian mainland. And so it was a crash program to try to develop that region. And so 
and you know the stories of the famous you know the looting of it the getting everybody hooked on opium and heroin all that kind of stuff i mean they they broke a lot of eggs making that omelet so whew. yeah no i mean like any way you slice it manchukuo was a huge crime against humanity including a crime against the japanese people because like they were promoting like japanese settlers to come to manchukuo and like we'll give you all this land and you can settle it. And it's like, first of all, that's land that was stolen from like Manchu and like Chinese people, but separately they were about to lose the war. Like those people were all about to be hung out to dry and they were. So all these Japanese settlers, it became this separate, huge humanitarian crisis. Like they were just stuck out there, you know, like as Japan lost the war. So it's just like, even if you're just a nationalist, like <laughs> it was just a huge crime against Japan. Yeah. But so Kishi, Kodama, and Sasakawa, several other guys were also, I mean, top guys were arrested. Tojo. Yeah. They really didn't prosecute Tojo. He hung, right? I'm pretty sure they executed him. He he did, but it, in my reading about uh the the days of you know Sagamo prison before he, he was he was making breakfast for his fellow prisoners, Tojo. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's just one thing I saw that I saw was interesting. So I, I'm imagining, you know, the scene in Goodfellas where <laughs> these guys they're all in prison and it opens up with the guy with the razor blade slicing the garlic super thin. They're having these gourmet meals in prison. And he's just doing that, but it's just wasabi and he's making like getting the pickles all right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, that's funny. All right, so a ton can be said about the decision to release them because they did not get amnesty, right? They simply were released and basically SCAP, like the Allied Command, chose not to prosecute them. It's not that they gave them a clean bill of health. Yeah, or they indicted them but then dropped the charges something like that yeah and so through the occupation there was always the possibility and the fear that they could still be prosecuted because they were arrested as class a war criminals which i have talked about the different classifications i think back in like one of the krupp episodes that i did but like that was some serious shit like yeah class a war criminal is like there's no room for doubt. Like, yeah, if you're in that classification, you're pretty much like a war criminal. I know that, you know, there's a whole thing about due process or whatever, but like realistically, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically they were in this limbo, even though as time went on up to the official time that they gave back, you know, full sovereignty to Japan, there was always this sort of looming threat that they could still be prosecuted. And they used that in addition to whatever formal deals they made basically as leverage to get these guys on the team, so to speak. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the, the context for all of this was something called the reverse course. Yeah. So the, um, it, you know, it was much more harsh the first couple of years or first year or whatever that they were in. But once this reverse course got going, 
uh, Sugamo's program became a lot more chill, if I may. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they, they got to do poetry, calligraphy, and the food got a lot better, and they got to write books and things like that. But um, this reverse course was, was the reason. So after World War II, Korea was basically partitioned into Free South and Communist North. You know, in 1948, there was insurgency and there was counterinsurgency in the South, and there were battles along the 38th parallel uh, between the North and South, but like battalion sized engagements of troops. So, meanwhile, Chiang Kai shek is losing the war and fleecing the hell out of some of his best supporters <laughs> with that whole gold yuan scheme and looting his country on his way out. And so by October of 1949, the Chinese Civil War ends, and it ended badly. Uh, if you didn't like communism, it ended really badly. Meanwhile, the Japanese Communist Party went from about 6,000 members in 1946 to over 100,000 by 1949. Yeah. So during this period, the occupation authorities are like, oh, crap. Um, we need to spring the fascists out of jail to help us fight the Reds, just like we've done on the other side of the, you know, the world island over there in Europe. We were doing the same thing for the same reasons around the same time. So that reverse course has to, you know, be understood uh, as, as part of that overall effort for moral rearmament uh, <laughs> after the war. And, and, and the legend, and this is some more of this Washington chopped down the cherry tree business. Um, the, the legend is uh, in Sagamo University. Uh, Sasakawa just got his hands on a copy of a Life magazine issue that had an article about high-speed boat racing in the U.S. And this, <laughs> the, the light bulb go off in his head, and he's like, you know, I know. When I get out of here, I'm going to. I'm going to start a state-run gambling monopoly and y'all use it as a big old slush fund. You know, it just sounds like apocryphal, you know, myth-making. It, it, it almost sounds like something Sasakawa would have said himself to some journalist. Like, how did you get this boat racing? Well, while I was in prison, I got a magazine. The rest is history. I was just born under a lucky star. What can I say, you know? It's like, yeah, I was in prison and I was just like, damn, what if I could print money? Yeah, yeah. And, and so the other guy, Kishi, by the way, I, I want to just bring up something about him real quick uh, before we move on about this. But, you know, Kishi was captivated by the writings of uh, Kitaiki, yeah. the father of Japanese fascism, and of Iki's disciple, Okama Shumei. And Shumei was the man who revived and uh, put into service the Hako Ichi and the Kodo and the former meaning of eight corners of the world under one roof and Kodo meaning imperial way. And so Kishi was, uh, you know, he was like Kodama descended from samurai and he always had a really good relationship and a lot of respect for the Japanese military. But in the end, he decided to work for Japan on the bureaucratic politician side of things. But, uh, so when, by the end, you know, the reverse course is really shocking to the Japanese public. They're like, what? The bad? I mean, you know, we're still smoldering from this. And you want to let these guys out of jail. This is bad. And, uh, but they did it anyway. And so the three amigos, 
Kishi the politician, Sasakawa the money man, and Kodama was like the American occupation authorities could not engage directly with the gangsters, with the mob, with the Yakuza, with the thugs and the strike breaking, you know, leg breakers and stuff. Yeah. Because to, to be seen as directly impressing into service these elements, um, it was just going to look really bad at home. So Kodama becomes Willoughby's, Charles Willoughby, the, the G2 head uh, of the Allied Occupation uh, Army Intelligence. Uh, this was the guy that um, MacArthur referred to as my pet fascist, right? So yeah. running, he's running the Army Intelligence for the Occupation, and he is working now with Kodama as his go-between for liaison with the, the Yakuza so that it's plausibly deniable, right? So it's, you know, that's my little rant about the, the Sugamo university days. No, that's great. And like the reverse course is very interesting because like, obviously the Japanese ruling elites and like the different cliques that made that up, they never wanted the initial course, right. To have to like eat crow and like, serve the Americans. So like they were more than happy to get an increased level of autonomy and, and just like be like, okay, so it's against the Chinese, against, you know, the Chinese communists, against the Soviets. Sure. That's kind of what we wanted in the first place. They were more than happy to do that. Yeah. At the same time, there was this interesting like internal civil war going on in like the state department where like, the rabid anti-communists were trying to push out all the old guard FDR types, some of whom were fellow travelers and pinkos, some of whom were not, yeah. but were getting called that anyway. So they were doing this reverse course as, like you said, the Cold War was heating up. Some of my listeners will remember how the Korean War specifically was the impetus to get Alfred Krupp out of prison because they needed his steel and they needed basically Krupp to be going full-time, right? Right. And it's the same exact thing here. I mean, not literally the same exact, but like it's the same basic idea that was happening. Like we need Japan to be fundamentally like a little Germany. Like we need them on our side. We need them, like we need to be able to like basically use Japan as a, field of operations for like Korea and possibly China. Yeah. And, and, you know, having studied a lot more on the European side and the immediate aftermath of world war two, when they're, you know, recruiting guys like Galen uh, yeah. over in Europe, you know, and, and then, and then I'm a little newer to the Japanese side, but then when you start looking into it, you're like, Oh my God, it's the same playbook, you know, you know, Let's get the mob mobilized, uh, uh, beat up the strikers in, in the docks in Marseille in 47. Yeah. You know, bribe slash leg break our way into defeating the communists in uh, Italy in, uh, I think it was 47. The same stuff's happening over in Japan. And just like with Europe, uh, there was a lot of American capital investment that had happened in Japan. That's right. In the days when we were friends, when we weren't enemies, there was a lot of people investing in, and they had 
uh, a powerful, what they call the Japan lobby. And I think the ambassador, Joseph Grew, was a big part of this, whereby, you know, a lot of American uh, investment banks and, you know, and such had said, hey, uh, those guys still owe us some money. Uh, <laughs> We want to protect our investments here, so maybe maybe uh, don't maybe just bomb the civilians and leave some of these factories alone. <laughs> I think that kind of happened on the bombing target list a little bit. No, for sure that happened in <laughs> Germany too. You yeah, know, yeah, you know, yeah. We're gonna need that stuff later, guys. So <laughs> you know, and who paid for it? The civilians, right? Yeah, no, it's always who ends up paying in all of these, right? They should they should have took shelter in in, in big factories because they might have been okay. <laughs> Sad man. Honestly, like not to be too bleak, but like if World War One, if World War Three breaks out here, <laughs> go take shelter in factories. I guess is the lesson, right? Yeah, I guess so. Oh geez. Well, I did want to say too <clears throat> before we get too far into the Japan lobby. I really like the idea here of like. Okay, you set up a puppet state, which is what Japan effectively was, like, arguably well into the 90s. I mean, we could talk about that in a little bit, but you basically set up a puppet state, and then one or two particularly profitable industries then get used as slush funds for all kinds of things, not just right-wing and, like, death squad-type shenanigans, but, like, also to pay off politicians in the home country, right? Yeah. So a lot of the motorboat racing gambling stuff was funding a lot of internal Japanese politics, but a lot of it would actually end up in the hands of politicians in the U.S. And just to list off one or two other examples, Greece, Richard Nixon, right? Yeah. And then Ukraine... Just about everyone in Congress, not, I don't mean everyone in Congress, but several crucial members of Congress and Joe Biden, Ukrainian energy companies, right? Nancy Pelosi, Mitt Romney, uh, who's the other one? There's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I promised my listeners I would never be timely, but I, I can't refrain. I can't stop myself in this case. But it's just a, it's a playbook, right? And they've done it in other countries. They did it in Japan. They've, they've done it in other countries since. It's a, it's a system, right? And, and we have to, you know, because this kind of history stuff, the kind of stuff that I get all warm and fuzzy about, like your podcast and like the farm or whatever, it focuses on all this dark, shady, you know, underworld, netherworld, whatever. But also... We shouldn't we shouldn't discount the fact that in amongst all of that there's like legit yeah. economic development building up of infrastructure and stabilizing uh, a destroyed country and hopefully yeah. raising living standards for uh, the regular folks that have just borne this terrible burden in Japan uh, for the previous 50 years of being basically pressed into service to become an empire you know so so there is that part too we should we shouldn't just breeze past it. No, for sure. Like there are definitely benefits, but at the same time, like you like always also have to ask, like, 
could they have gotten an even better deal like with a like a different system right oh my god yeah undoubtedly and they paid for it with their kneecaps when they tried <laughs> yes <laughs> in as literal a sense as i know you mean yeah yeah um okay let's see here so supposedly sasakawa got the idea for the motorboat racing while he was in prison but it was up and running by 1954 when he established the All Japan Motorboat Racing Association. The thing, like like we said, the, the thing is it came with officially state-sanctioned gambling. Japan has always been really big into gambling, and gambling has always been around, but and like it was it would be in like a gray area. It wouldn't necessarily be like legal, legal, but it wouldn't be like you know what I'm saying? Like the Yakuza initially were largely focused on just running gambling dens and then protecting them. So like that is where they come from. They like the Yakuza historically have always come from several of these gray industries that are like quasi legal. Yeah. Not terribly unlike organized crime in every other country, basically. Except with a much longer and storied history that is really surprising. Like, it seems to be a really unique thing, a particular way that organized crime has worked in Japan. I mean, <laughs> they pass out business cards and they got their own fan magazines. And, yeah. Uh, you know, they, <laughs> their uh, headquarters of the Yamaguchi Gumi family is like, you know, it's, it's lit up. You can find it. It's not a smoke-filled room. It's right there in the middle of town, wherever. I can't remember where. It's Kobe. Or yeah. And it's a different beast. It's interesting, too, because, like, you know how, like, in the United States, there are cowboy movies, and then there's, like, decade by decade, sort of, like, different waves of different types of portrayals of cowboys? <clears throat> well, Yakuza movies have been around in Japan about as long as Japanese cinema and the original like iteration of Japanese Yakuza films showed that showed the Yakuza is fundamentally like this chivalric type of thing. Yeah. And then later they showed more gritty realistic depictions. So they like kind of did the whole like unforgiven. Right. So they kind of did the un- unforgiven thing more in like the seventies and then like, Anyway, it's it's a whole thing. I'm going to eventually do like the Yakuza media episode, but like I love it. It's very interesting. I've seen so many Yakuza movies. <laughs> huh. Yeah, but we, we got off we got off topic talking about the Yakuza, but uh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I, I love it, but uh, where were we? Well, um, let's see. So the motorboat racing specifically uh, was funding a big slush fund. Well, it funded a bunch of stuff. So let's maybe go through a couple things. things. Uh, 75% of the gambling revenue would be like paid out to gamblers who won. 10% would go to local governments. Uh, somewhere like 11% would go to the Motorboat Racing Association. And 3.3% would go to Japan's Shipbuilding Industry Foundation which was supposed to sort of like build up Japanese shipbuilding industry, but Sasakawa controlled that as well. Yeah. 
So he basically got a taste from several angles of this. Uh, he controlled both the Motorboat Racing Association and the foundation, and he put Kodama as the head of the Tokyo Motorboat Racing Association. <laughs> and they used the revenues, which equaled something like $8 billion, I think that's equivalent to dollars by the 1980s. And that is what Sasakawa used to build his financial and philanthropic empire. Yeah, a legalized uh, state gambling monopoly. Which, man, I mean, if you can convince the state to do that, like, yeah, you've got it made, right? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's, does, it does sort of beg the question, like, why give it to Sasakawa? Why not just have the state in charge of it, right? <clears throat> because he's that uh, mer- mercurial uh, fixer, wheeler, dealer guy that is like a parapolitical god (laughs) like seriously like a god of parapolitics you know if you're talking about big money the overworld and the underworld uh coming together to shape reality if you take that as your baseline definition of parapolitics the man towers in the history of such things so why would you not give that to him you know they've got 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 plans for you if he was born under a lucky star, of course you're going to have him be in charge of gambling, right? Can't have an unlucky guy in charge of gambling. Bingo. <laughs> you, you nailed it. Yeah.
So yeah, I mean, Sasakawa already like had a family fortune, but now he basically enters like billionaire territory. Yeah. And yeah, he would, well, just he would expand and he would basically monopolize a lot of the businesses downstream of motorboat racing too. So like different, you know, companies making like components and things like that. Yeah. And I want to just throw one thing in here that because we're in this little pocket of the early fifties, right? When, yeah. when Sasakawa steps out of Sugamo in 1949, it's at the halfway point of his life. Mm. You know, the guy lived to be like 94 or 95 or something. He died in like 95. He's born in 1899. So first half of his life, you know, ends with him stepping out of Sugamo prison and he's got four, five decades that he's still going to start. Just putting it in perspective there. That's good. That's good. Okay. Well, around this time, just in the 1950s, Sasakawa would brag publicly that he was a drinking companion of the head of the Yamaguchi Gumi, which you mentioned earlier. <clears throat> That's the main Yakuza family, right? Right. You know, I, I think maybe... Uh, the the new religions, moral rearmament, the Moonies. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's uh, I, I I am very fascinated by these these new religions. Um, I'm I'm fascinated by the writings of traditionalists like Rene Guénon and I guess Julius Evola. Just to, you know, just when I want to know what the Steve Bannon uh, playbook is or whatever or what's the other guy the Russian guy Alexander Dugan you know yeah <laughs> but but anyway uh, the, the notion of modern times and modernism uh, throwing the the earth the psychic you know earth <laughs> off of its axis and throwing people out through the centrifugal force of, of this modernist juggernaut uh, the ground underneath the human race recedes and goes bye-bye. And so the things that, you know, things like Christendom and Islam and Buddhism or whatever um, can barely hold on as an organizing force for the human race. And in places like Japan and Korea, uh, I mean, they just literally call it the Japanese and Korean, the new religions. Like, we don't call Scientology, you know, we don't put something like Scientology or, uh, I don't know, the Satanic Church or what, whatever kind of different. We have all these new religions all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. 
but we don't typically put them in this basket of saying, oh yeah, that's one of the, the new religions and like expect people to know what we're talking about. Yeah. But apparently over in Japan and Korea, they're like, oh yeah, the new religions. Cause there were like bunches of them and it's just like pottery shards or whatever that you find in an archeological site, just like these, the wreckage of earth's collision with modernism. And now these pieces of pottery are being glued together in these new forms. No, I really like that. Like, I like you saying that it's essentially like a, this weird reaction or critique of modernity because, like, there is something interesting with modernity that, like, no one really seems to like, and yet no one really knows what to do with. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, and, you know, I always like, like I, I like Rene Gagnon and the traditionalists in the same way that I like Karl Marx in in that like, okay, your critique I like. Yeah. What do we now do about it? If you're talking, when we get to the chapter, when you're going to say, therefore, we need to do this. No, no, no. What is to be done? In other words. <laughs> yeah, that that's the part where everybody loses me. When it, but when it comes to like the the. The, the criticism that they make, uh, you know, that they make of, of these systems is, you know, usually spot on. Uh, yeah. So, so anyway, so Japan, okay. I, I'm going to read you a quote from a very rare book that I don't have, but I found it on Google Books, man. Google Books is your friend. Um, you can always find a little snippet, but here it goes. This is from Eric Robertson. The book was called The Japanese File. And it says, quote, the Japanese had always recognized the tremendous political influence of religion. Their experience with missionaries in the 16th and 17th centuries remaining a vivid memory during the whole subsequent period of seclusion from the world. So that after the country was reopened in 1854, the Japanese resented the presence of the foreign missionary. This resentment became transmogrified in the case of Japan's leaders into an awareness of the potential value of missionaries. They decided that instead of being influenced by foreign missionaries, they would subvert the religions themselves and use them for their own purposes, end quote. Yeah. Now, I, I think this is interesting because like in one of your previous episodes, you were talking about war Buddhism and Suzuki. Mm -hmm. And just basically like, how do we warp and, and bend Buddhism to fit our modern imperial project? And it turns out you can do exactly that. You can make it, you know, like, like Mark Twain said, the devil can find something to back himself up in the Bible if he just looks hard enough or something like that, right? Yeah. So, so here they are like, oh, yeah, it's actually completely Buddhist to, uh, you know, chop, you know, have bayonet practice on that. <laughs> <laughs> POWs or whatever. Um, but it also makes me think of the Moonies uh, and, and, and moral rearmament. And, and I don't, this is going to be hard to say out loud, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, let's just be real about it. Christianity was a foreign religion, often an imposition. Uh, the missionaries were working hand in glove with foreign governments or corporations or like the East India Company ultimately did not have the average Asian's best interest at heart. Um, you know, nor, nor, nor a lot of respect for the culture or the religion that they were imposing themselves on. And, in my opinion, uh, nor should that kind of respect be 
expected. It's literally not how it works. When a, when a missionary knocks on my door, I consider it to be like a mild form of warfare against my own beliefs. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're literally, they're literally on a mission. Uh, and my soul is the territory that they're after. You yeah. Know? If you didn't think somebody was in error for what they believe, you didn't, you know, uh, you wouldn't be out to try to save them in the first place. So it's automatically like paternalistic, you know, it's, it's literally aggression um, in my opinion. Okay. So, you know, even though we're a diplomatic mission, military mission, religious mission, I mean, these are the, the connotations that the word mission uh, comes up in. So by the late 1800s, Western missionaries were handing out morphine as a supposed cure for opium addiction. The Chinese started calling it Jesus opium. You know, <laughs> just good Lord. Okay. So, yeah, no, just real quick too. It's interesting because Japan was, like you said, always keenly aware of how religion can be instrumentalized in that way. And it really colored their perception of Christianity and actually like socialism because all of the Japanese socialists were like the early generation were all Japanese Christians. Ooh. So they basically, the Japanese state was just like, no, why do we want this socialism stuff? That's just some Christianity. That's, that's like imperialism, basically, like, not to like, basically say they were right, but that's sort of where they were coming from, which really colors, I think, the ruling classes interaction with socialism for many decades, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we, we don't want to pick on the Japanese for things like war Buddhism too much because uh, everybody was doing it. Yeah. You know, the moral, re- the moral rearmament movement um, twisted Christianity and basically subjugated around the world in the service of anti-communism. Um, spiritual mobilization uh, in the United States was an elite movement that kind of did the same thing. Uh, so the Japanese did the same thing. And the Koreans uh, permitted the early unification church of some young moon to, to, to flourish, and especially once it went over into Japan beginning in 1958, through, by the way, the good offices of Mr. Ryoichi Sasakawa. Uh, <laughs> serious. Uh, the Moonies, when they came to Japan in 58, they became like this moral rearmament inspired. Uh, transnational anti-communist, anti-communist uh, religious movement, but but also like a vehicle for advancing South Korean and Japanese economic and diplomatic relations. Yeah, and and you know what? Good for them. Okay, I'm sorry to be sympathetic with this stuff, but you know it's not like they didn't have good teachers. Uh, the European imperialists and American imperialists taught the Japanese a lot of what they needed to learn, right? So if they're doing it to us, we'll do it to them. Um, You know, just, I mean, for example, Japan took over the opium war against China (laughs) and other areas they conquered. They they didn't invent it, but they sure put it to use. Um, So I don't really have any problem with the Moonies per se at all when it comes to seeing it through the lens of, Japan, especially trying to rebuild itself into a world power, and why not use religion as one of the tools in the toolkit? What what bothers me about the Moonies isn't even the Moonies themselves; it's that the American Empire, especially the Republican Party and the religious right, decided it was fine to partner with the new religion that was anathema 
Yeah, I mean, didn't the 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 Mooney conference just happen? The the one that is like associated with CPAC or something. Like, I feel like it. Like, because you know, it's like every year or whatever. I've been too busy rubbernecking the Ukrainian war. Kept <laughs> up, uh, fortunately, but yeah, but yeah, they have they have these annual conferences to this day. But the thing about the Unification Church, though, is that it's the research that I've done in the last year or so, and, and I, I want to shout out the late great Don Diligent, who, uh, yeah. if your listeners listen to the World Anti-Communist League series that we did and the, and the podcast on the more we are, uh, he, he, was, he was a great guy and really had broken a lot of new ground in his research, especially when it came to the moral rearmament slash Japan Mooning connections. Um, so, you know, just really quick, moral rearmament was originally the Oxford movement um, of the first century Christians. Uh, they called themselves, just like a lot of modern new religions, they want to uh, adopt the patina or to maybe mm-hmm. borrow from the prestige of the original iteration of whatever. So it's, you know, make America great again. Uh, the first century Christians, Pentecostal Christians, like, you know, with Pentecost, you know, and the Book of Acts and everything. You know, we're taking it back to the beginning. This is the same thing that the traditionalists, you know, we got to get through the Kali Yuga so that the golden age can come back. And it's always this backward looking uh, sort of thing. So anyway, moral rearmament was um, a right wing uh, Yankee dominated um, English, Anglo-American, you know, sort of project that did conflict resolution and uh, confessional things where people would confess where they had gone wrong and and stuff like that. And it was supposed to be this pioneering uh, methodology for resolving disputes between capital and labor. Between capital and labor, you say? Yeah. So when I was, we were talking about the, the, the guys writing the books in Sagamo prison, you know, and they have to eat crow or whatever, that's a big part of the moral rearmament ideology is make the boss come in and say, sorry, and watch everybody go, oh, my God, really? Henry Ford is apologizing, whatever, you know. Um, so they were huge in Japan and in East Asia, they were buddies. Frank Buckman was the founder. You know, he's buddies with Chiang Kai-shek. He's buddies with the, the Liberal Democratic Party, which we haven't really talked about the 1955 system yet. But uh, the moral rearmament movement was a big part of post-war Japanese uh, private diplomacy. Uh, yeah, yeah, non-state you know, cultural organizations, religious organizations, and they're doing diplomacy through this. And so the Moody's, uh, the Unification Church borrowed, it just really cribbed, like, just word for word in some some ways, you know, uh, the moral rearmament thing. And when people talk about um, the, the Unification Church, it is not wrongly uh, thought of as this Korean phenomenon. And, um, 
you know, moon's first peak and then fall from grace and American politics came in the mid-70s with the Koreagate scandal, where it was like a congressional bribery scandal. And on one hand, you've got this Tungsten Park guy that's, you know, buying up congressmen. And on the other hand, you've got the Unification Church that's working the American government over in other ways. And it's all about keep the war going in Vietnam, which Japan benefited from a great deal, by the way. Uh, and it's also about keep American economic aid and military aid coming to Korea. So uh, they called it Korea Gate. And uh, in the 70s, one of the guys that wrote this Occupation Without Troops book, uh, John G. Roberts, had written an article that I tried to get, but I couldn't get it in time. And it was an article about Sasakawa, Nippon's right wing muscle man. <laughs> but but, you know, in, in that article, uh, some of the quotes that I found, uh, first of all, Sasakawa credits Chiang Kai-shek himself with helping him get out of Sugamo prison. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, uh, see why I tried to get that article. But the other thing was, in that article, towards the end, he's talking about now, now with the Korea Gate stuff going on, the next shoe to drop is the Japanese aspect to it. And he was anticipating that that was going to be coming out of the Korea Gate stuff because Japan was all up in all of that, but it never happened. It never happened. And so anyway, the point is when I'm trying to go with this, I'm kind of rambling here. Um, what if, if you look at the unification church as a, uh, a Japanese driven operation with a Korean mask, mm -hmm. A lot, of, a lot of things make a lot more sense. Yeah, no, like when in just in talks and also the podcast that, you know, you have been involved in, like when you guys were basically talking about that, like so much sort of falls into place with the Moonies rather than it being just like this weird cult that tries to do, you know, tries to involve itself in politics, seeing it as like, to some extent, like basically a Japanese operation, like it just makes so much more sense. Yeah. Sasakawa was a, an early backer of moral rearmament in Japan, and he was a backer of the Unification Church as well. Wasn't there something about where the moral rearmament office was in Japan? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Uh, the MRH Center in Japan later changed its name to the Japan Center for International Exchange in 1976. And the MRA headquarters in Japan later served as the secretariat for the Rockefeller, you know, trilateral. Commission. <laughs> the trilateral commission, you say? The, the dread uh, trilateral commission, yes. <laughs> I did say moral rearmament was a Yankee, you know, kind of new world order sort of uh, institution. Anglo-American. Yeah. 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 The, the, the evil empire, the, the new world order um, <laughs> that, you know, it's always in the, the conspiracy mythos is always talked about as, you know, going to bring this worldwide communist dictatorship, but like a pillar of the post-war new world order where organizations like moral rearmament that were, using soft power, diplomatic conflict resolution type, let's sit down and talk kind of stuff to try to stop communism. So it just doesn't hold up. Um, 
I wish some of these guys, you know, the John Birch people or whatever would have just said, we're actually just against the Anglo-American empire, you know, <laughs> and then just state your case and don't make it about baby eating Satanists and, and, and a worldwide communist conspiracy. Just, just say what it is, you know. You want the gold standard back. Okay, fine. Just, just say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's always nebulous with them. But it, that is what's interesting, too, because, like, if moral rearmament is like this Yankee Anglo type of thing, but like the Moonies were always very associated with like the Republicans essentially. So it's like the Cowboys. Yeah. It's all like mixed up together. It's really not like, yeah. And guess who's got a foot in each one? Rio Ichi Sasakawa. Uh, Situation serious. The earth went flat, the sun went black, and it's making me delirious. And I'm watching it all from this quarantine window, thinking, who what a time to be woke. Yes, and I'm laughing just to keep from crying. It ain't funny. Even if it is a joke, I'm talking about the Twilight Zone. Yeah, man, I'm talking about the Twilight Zone. On a long, rugged road, a long way from home. I got these blue pills sitting on my nightstand, babe. And I feel like they was made just for you. Keep them next to the blues And man, it will go straight to your head It takes about 18 months to kick in good And my brother, you'll be seeing red It goes with the twilight zone Yeah, man, it goes with the twilight zone Been waiting out here for years, man What took y'all so long? And then it's, oh no, oh no, oh no. Now the end of the world, it looks mighty fine. Stumbling around, cold candy flipping. Yeah, man, whoa. At first it made me sick till I caught on to the trick. And now it's, oh yeah.
I made a note to myself I was gonna sort it all out If I could just make it back to town But for now I'm stuck in this quarantine cloister Hit me up, boys, I'll have us a time I'm taking the rest of my red and blue pill stash I'm gonna chop them up into purple line Color for the twilight zone Yeah, man, it goes with the twilight zone I'm gonna do one more bump Then I'll be over the hump And now it's oh yeah, oh You did the talking.